Well, good morning to you. My name is Trevor, and it's lovely to be in your presence on this cool uh, Santa Monica morning. If you have a Bible, I would like to invite you to open up to Judges chapter 19. Uh, Before we dive into our text this morning, I've got an announcement for you, which is if you are a member of the church, next Sunday after service, we are going to have our annual meeting, a family meeting. It's going to be a wonderful time. We're going to talk about our vision as a church, where we're headed, where we're going, some important updates. Um, It's just going to be a good time to be together. So if you are a member of the church next Sunday after service, plan to stick around and, uh, and we're going to have a great meeting together at our annual meeting. So please be aware of that. We've got some new leaders stepping in. Just the whole thing is very exciting. All right, Uh, we are in our second to last week of Judges. We will do Judges this week, and we will do Judges, we will finish Judges next week. And when we started in Judges, I was uh, was certain that this particular chapter, Judges chapter 19, was going to be the one I was warning you about. Um, I had talked about things getting darker and the days are getting darker, and everything's getting darker, and, uh, and the text has gotten darker. So this morning, I just want to prepare you that where we're going to head is in some places that are pretty raw when thinking about humanity and the depravity and what human beings are capable of. We have an obsession in our culture a little bit around serial killers, Uh, There's a a show right now that's sort of booming on Netflix about Jeffrey Dahmer, Um, and it seems like every year there is a new film, a new documentary, a new way to examine those who have committed some of the most horrific crimes we've ever seen. In 2003, uh, one of my uh, favorite musical artists, a guy named Sufjan Stevens, uh, decided that he was going to make a bunch of albums, one after every single state. And so he began this ambitious sort of publicity stunt by, by having an album called Michigan. And the album Michigan was all songs about Michigan. And people thought, that's kind of interesting. Is he really going to do it? And then shortly thereafter, he released another album, this one called Illinois. And it was all about Illinois. It was all filled with Illinois history, Illinois facts. Every song kind of dealt with the state. And it was sort of, uh, it's a wonderfully beautiful, complex sort of ode to the state of Illinois. And on that album is a song about a serial killer. The song on that, two, on, that, on that album is called John Wayne Gacy Jr. And John Wayne Gacy was a serial killer that, uh, that his crimes took place in the 1960s and the 1970s. And Sufjan Stevens is not really known for writing songs that are this dark, but this song is sort of delicate and haunting in that it seeks to uh, articulate while, why this man's crimes in that state were so significant. And not just that, the song seeks to sort of unravel some of the reasons why he may have done the terrible things that he did. The song begins by saying his father was a drinker and his mother cried in bed. It speaks of an injury that he had on the playground. And the song keeps the the, the horrific crimes and even the person of John Wayne Gacy at a distance until the final stanza of the song, which 
I, I, would, I would encourage you in light of this sermon, maybe give that song a listen. Uh, Sufjan ends that song by saying this about John Wayne Gacy. Sufjan Stevens says, in my best behavior, I am really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards for the secrets I have hid. Here, Sufjan Stevens is wrestling with the reality that you cannot just pick a serial killer out in a crowd. You can't do that. It's sort of a strange, it, it, it feels, if you look more closely at them, that some of the same things that are in them, we are, if we're really honest, are also in us. Jesus shows up in the Sermon on the Mount and he, he, he teaches to a bunch of people who think we would never commit murder. Jesus says, you have heard it said, you know, not to commit murder. But I tell you that if you, if you speak to your brother, if you call him a fool, if you speak with anger, you've committed murder in your heart. Jesus shows up and says to people who say, I would never commit adultery. Jesus says, if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed it in your heart. Jesus says that, that the, the seeds of the kinds of horrific things we see in the world, we also see in ourselves. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at a text in Judges 19. We're going to focus primarily on two characters, one person particularly who is the main character of the story. And we're going to look at this character and we're going to look at God, and we're going to look at ourselves. I will just give you a warning. This morning's text is difficult. The Bible is, is completely honest about how messed up things can be, how dark we can get. Um, and so this morning deals with topics like sexual assault and brutality and murder, and it's dark. And in the text, we will find no hope. We will only find sin. And so um, Judges 19, chapters 1 through 4, uh, is, sorry, Judges 19, verses 1 through 4 is where we will begin. Um, I'm going to tell this, uh, this, this, we'll walk through this text in three scenes. So um, our, our, we'll do three scenes, and the first scene, right, if you're watching a film, the first scene is the priest who looks like God. And so we'll begin with Judges 19, 1 through 4. It says this. In those days, Israel had no king. We've heard this phrase before. We've heard it all throughout the book of Judges, and we're often used to the larger version. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit, right? Austin talked about this last week. You all spent a lot of time thinking about that last week. Same thing. So the, the writer wants you to know, Judges 19, in those days, Israel had no king. They did what they saw fit. Nothing we are about to read is something that God is in favor of. Everything we're about to see is something that God is going to ultimately be against, and we'll examine that. So you need to know this verse is crucial. In those days, Israel had no king. And now we're going to dive into the story. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. But she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem, Judah. And after she had been there four months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys, 
She took him into her parents' home, and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the woman's father, prevailed on him to stay. So he remained with him three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. The text begins by saying there's no king in Israel. They don't recognize God as king. They don't live as though God is in charge. They do what they think is best, what is right in their own eyes. And then we meet a character, a Levite. Now, a Levite is from the tribe of Aaron. A Levite is a priest, right? So the priest and the Levite are sort of, uh, they're sort of synonymous. And so this Levite is uh, not just, you know, he's not just a regular guy. He's a special kind of person. He's a priest. And the first thing we learn about him is that he took for himself a concubine. doesn't say he took for himself a wife. It says he took for himself a concubine. And the reason it says that is because um, a concubine is a woman who is, does, is, is technically a wife, but does not share the full privileges of being his actual wife. She doesn't share the same kinds of legal rights if something were to happen when he dies. So she is sort of like a second-class wife, um, but a wife nonetheless, which raises all sorts of interesting questions about whether or not the Levite has an actual wife. We don't know if he does or if he doesn't, but we just know that she ha he has this concubine as his wife. And then the text immediately lets us know in verse 2 that this concubine is unfaithful. She cheats on him. She cheats on her husband, the priest, the Levite. And then she ran to her father's house. Now, in Leviticus chapter 20, the Bible teaches that the sin of committing adultery in Israel is capital punishment. So if she commits adultery, not just for her, but also for whoever she sleeps with, if she commits adultery, she begins to run away to her father's house. Why is that? Well, one, because she could be facing capital punishment, but also because the question of who is responsible for enacting capital punishment according to the Bible, well, in Deuteronomy 17, we discover that it is the Levites. So she's married to the man whose responsibility it is to enact capital punishment for the adultery that she has committed. And so she runs away. And when you're reading this text, your first thoughts are, what is he going to do? His wife committed adultery, runs away, what is he going to do? Well, surely your mind has it to think that like, oh, he is going to go get her so that he can end her life. But instead, we see something very different. In verse 3, it says that he went to persuade her to return. He went, the text says, to go speak to her heart. He went to bring her home. He brings his servant and an extra donkey. He goes not to punish, but to rescue his unfaithful wife. This story begins, and at first, the priest looks like God. Because the Bible teaches that we run away from God, that we are unfaithful. That's most of what Judges is about, is about our unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness. We sometimes sing a song, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave, 
the God I love. That cry is in each of our hearts. We are prone to be unfaithful to God. We are prone to say, no, God, I'll do things my way. I don't want to listen to you or do things the way you say I ought to do. We are all prone to do that. And what does God do? God is gentle and also relentless about going after us. In the Bible, God calls himself the groom, and we are the bride. He calls us his bride, and he goes to the ends of the earth to rescue his bride. God is like a jealous husband who loves his wife so much that he chases after her. There's an entire book in the Old Testament called The Song of All Songs, and it's a love story, and it's really about God's love for his people. See, we are unfaithful, runaway brides. And God pursues us. I don't know where you're at this morning in your relationship with God. Maybe you have been running from God for a while because you've been unfaithful. And you have this sense that if you run from God, you can get to a place where eventually you'll clean yourself up to make yourself presentable again to Him. That's how most of us relate to God. But that's not the character and nature of God. God makes it clear that he loves his bride and he goes and pursues her. If you are here this morning and you are running after God, I want running away from God, I want you to know he's not standing at a distance. He is pursuing you. There's a whole book, a minor prophet in the Old Testament, the book of Hosea. And the book of Hosea is about God going to a prophet named Hosea and saying, Hosea, I want you to marry a prostitute named Gomer. And when she's unfaithful to you, I want you to go after her and chase her down. Why? Because that's how I feel about my people. And the book of Hosea quotes Judges 19 three times. Those are connected texts. So you're reading this text. And you hear a story about a Levite, a priest, whose, whose unfaithful wife runs away and who gets a donkey to go get her, to rescue her, to bring her home, to speak to her heart. And you're, you're reading this and you're thinking, man, this priest looks like God. Because that's what God is like. God pursues us when we are unfaithful. Scene two. The priest who doesn't look like God. The priest arrives to pick up his bride, and as you already read, he is greeted by his father-in-law. His father-in-law is welcomes him in, and his father-in-law for three days says, stay with me, let's eat, let's have a drink, why don't you get, get full and let's just be together. And this happens for three days. Now, in the Bible, in the ancient cultures, hospitality is incredibly important. And three days is the standard amount of hospitality. So the father is, is maybe sensing that he's come to rescue his daughter. He is seemingly over and over and over again begging him to stay. In fact, it's so much that when you read Judges 19, you start to notice that the hospitality is so overextended that it has some ominous undertones. What is happening that the, that the father says on the fourth day, don't leave, stay, don't leave, stay. And we pick up in verse 7. When the man, the priest, got up to go, his father-in-law persuaded him. So he stayed there that night. 
And on the morning of the fifth day, when he rose to go, the woman's father said, refresh yourself, wait till afternoon. So the two of them ate together. The father says, stay, 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 wait till the afternoon. He waits and waits. The father, overly hospitable. And you start to notice the priest is receiving hospitality. The father is giving hospitality. And what does it say? It says, the two of them ate together. At the beginning of the text in Judges 19, you're wondering what's going to happen when this Levite gets and meets his bride, and you get further into the text and you realize it doesn't seem to matter to the priest or to her father. The story in the middle of it starts to center exclusively on the dad and on the priest. And for five days, they eat together They drink together. They party together. And if you're reading the story carefully, you might start to wonder, wait, what happened to reconciliation with your wife? Her voice is missing. Her presence, hardly felt. Her perspective is unknown. Does she reconcile? It doesn't say. Does anyone ask her opinion? Who knows? She is completely pushed to the edges of the story. And you start to realize very clearly that these two men care more about themselves and their relationship with one another than they care about her at all. This woman has no voice. There's no embrace. There's no agreement. She becomes completely overlooked. The author even wants you to know that the two of them are regularly eating. Where is she? Who cares? She doesn't seem to matter very much because both of these men begin to treat this woman as though she is an object. They become drinking buddies who don't think about her at all. Now maybe the father is so enamored with getting to be in the presence of a priest and a Levite that he just wants to secure that relationship. This is a networking opportunity for him. Hey, I get to be around this person. They're influential. They're successful. They, they are priests. They, they can somehow are supposed to teach me something about God. I've got a Levite who I'm friends with. And so maybe the woman gets pushed to the outsides by her own father because he's more interested in being friends with the Levite. And for the Levite, it starts to become clear that maybe his relationship with the concubine isn't one of love. Maybe it's one of power. Maybe it's one of control. Maybe he desires to use her rather than love her. Now, they're unnamed in the text partly because they stand as sort of types of what's happening in Israel. The the text is supposed to let you know that what you thought you may have been witnessing as a reconciled love story isn't a love story at all. This is how fathers act. This is how Levites live. This is how women are treated. This is less hopeful than we thought. This is dark. Why do women get pushed to the outsides? Why? Often in our own world today, are they objectified, mistreated, overlooked, disrespected? Why does that happen? 
When you start reading Judges 19, you discover that it happened then, and it only takes a newspaper for us to see that it still happens today. I was shocked this week when I was in the news reading a story of a father, a father who is the biggest fan of his daughter's online pornographic account. And I just thought, how do you get to the place where you would allow or desire your daughter to be treated like that? How do you get to the place where, you know, we forget that's someone's daughter, that's someone's wife, potentially, right? In this case, yes. That's someone's, could be someone's sister, like we dehumanize. And that's all over this text. And, and you should be feeling as you're reading this text these sort of ominous overtones about how maybe this woman's perspective doesn't matter. Well, finally, after this conversation, they decide to leave. And we hit the third and final scene of the story. And I've titled this third scene, The Priest Who is the Antithesis of God. They get out of the house after five days. It's the priest, his servant, two donkeys, and his wife, the concubine. And they begin to leave, and as they begin to leave and head back home, there's an opportunity for them to stop in Jabus, which is a city. And if you read the book of Judges, you'll discover that Jabus is run by the Canaanites. In Judges chapter 1, we see that Israel did not drive them out. And so the priest decides to say, we should not stop in the land of the Canaanites. That would not be a safe place for us to go. So instead, we will travel the additional two and a half miles, and we will end up going to a city called Gibeah. And there's this question in the text, which is like, obviously it's going to be better for God's people to, lead, to not stay in the land of the Canaanites and instead to stay in the land where Israelites are, specifically the Benjamites in Gibeah. And so they arrive in Gibeah, again, man, wife, servant, two donkeys, big party, and they can't find a place to stay. That's a strange thing because in Israel, again, hospitality is a big deal. And maybe you'd say, well, they're kind of a big party. Um, and they are. They've got, there's a lot of them, right, coming together. But it's, it's, it's a big group, and they can't find a place to stay. So they decide to stay at the town square, middle of the city, and it's starting to get dark. And they meet an old man who's not really from around there but happens to live in the area. And this old man says to them, you don't want to stay here. And as we hit this third act, we arrive at the darkest portion of the story. I'll read it in its entirety, and then we'll work through it a little bit. Judges 19, verse 20 through 30. The old man says to this, this group, he says, you're welcome at my house. Let me supply whatever you need. Only don't spend the night in the town square. So he took him into his house and fed his donkeys. And after they had washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. And while they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Now remember, these wicked men are men who are from the tribe of Benjamin. They are Israelites. And they surround the house where the priest and his concubine and servant and donkeys are staying. 
And they begin to pound on the door and they shout to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. And the owner of the house went outside and said to them, no, my friends, don't be so vile. This man is my guest. Don't do this outrageous thing. Look, here's my virgin daughter and his concubine. I'll bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you want. But as far as this man, the priest, don't do such an outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them. And they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn, they let her go. And at daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there until daylight. When her master, the Levite, got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. And when he reached home, he took a knife and he cut up his concubine, limb by limb, into 12 parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel. And everyone who saw it was saying to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something. So speak up. There are at least three evil things that happen in this section. The most obvious is the sexual assault. Like I said, women were abused then, and they still are today. The Bible's view of women is that they are to be treated as though they are made in the very image of God. That women are, in the Bible, the crown of creation in Genesis. They are the glory of the glory in the New Testament. They are the best of all creation. And the greatest image you could possibly have for God's church is the one of a bride. As Christians, we profess that we are saved by God, a God who chose to be born of a woman, the only woman to ever have God physically dwell in her body. The Bible elevates the value of women. You are to see that what happens in this text is something that God abhors. God hates. God hates this. This unnamed concubine has a horrible night. She dies seeking refuge from a man who does not truly love her. If ever there is a character in the entire Bible, apart from Christ himself, who experiences hell on earth, it is her. 
She doesn't just experience sexual assault. She also experiences death. She experiences murder. She has barely enough strength to make it back to the doorstep where her husband is, and she collapses right there. Her life has been taken from her. The Bible always lays out from the beginning in Genesis that when we reject God as king and we live as though we are in charge, chaos reigns, anarchy reigns. And anarchy leads to violence and sexual violence. Murder and sexual violence. These are two pictures of the consequences of the fall. And we we see this in Scripture. And and the the third evil that's worth highlighting, and the thing that I have, um, it's like everything is awful, everything is terrible, but this really, this gets my blood boiling. You notice that the writer is very clear, gives only very clear details about the women's story because she's not the main character of the story. The Levite is. Now, if you are familiar with your Bible, this whole thing that happens should remind you of another story. Judges 19 should remind you of Genesis 19 and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in Sodom, there's like nine similarities between these stories. And on some level, what you're supposed to see really clearly is that Sodom, a city that ends up being destroyed because it's completely turned away from God, um, uh, Israel has now become that kind of city. Right? Sodom is a city that's filled with sexual violence and oppression and injustice, and that city ends up being destroyed. And in Sodom, right, they come for the man, the guests. Um, sorry, in Sodom they come for the guests, and, uh, and the man's pulled back in. Here the Levite's pulled back in. But things may be worse here than in Sodom because this woman, this concubine, is given to the mob. And what does the priest do? What does her husband do? He does nothing. What what we're supposed to see here is like, what what should the priest have done? Like, what should happen? Right, you're reading Judges. Like, is this where Samson comes in to save? No. Is this where Gideon shows up? No. Is this where Deborah shows up? No. No one comes to the rescue. What does her husband do? What does the priest do? Nothing. He could have done anything rather than what he did. What does the text say? She she dies on the doorstep. And it says, when he got up in the morning. While his wife was experiencing hell and death, he was sleeping in. While she's being tortured, he is asleep. The priest in this story looks nothing like God. He looks like the opposite of God. And then he takes his 
bride's body and puts him on the donkey that at the beginning of the story you thought was going to be where they, a symbol of their reconciliation and almost like chivalry. Now it is her dead body that ends up being cut into 12 pieces that he uses to incite a war. And we'll talk about that a little bit next week, but Israel goes to war against Benjamin. It's just, they lose 26,000 men. It's, it's horrible. They had no king. They did what is right in their own eyes. And this priest looks nothing like God. You're supposed to feel the sense of what a terrible priest, what a terrible husband, what a terrible world. This poor, unnamed girl moved to the margins. We've never seen anything like this. And what you're supposed to know, what you're supposed to see, is that God is nothing like this priest. God would have gone out instead of his bride. God would have endured hell on behalf of his bride. God would have had his life taken from him instead of his bride. And that's precisely what God has done. The priest sees her in the morning and says, get up, let's go. Puts her on a donkey. No compassion. But the real priest, our great high priest, Jesus, is filled with compassion. He knows our suffering. We have a priest that a mob came for. And he died for his bride. This priest is nothing like our priest. That's what kind of God God is. And now when we read a text like this, our tendency is to, is to think, you know, like, this is so wicked and so evil, this could never happen to any of us. This could never be a story that could happen in our world, but we do see it in our newspaper. But more than that, I want you to begin to see that the very kinds of evil that happens here exist in our own heart. I think what we do is we create three classes of people. We say that there are, um, there are uh, good people and really good people and there are really bad people and then most of us are in the middle, in this middle section. Most of us are kind of mi a mixture of good and bad. We look at people who we think are saintly and we go, oh, they're very good. We look at the people who we think are evil, we think, oh, they are very bad. But the Bible doesn't have two, three categories. It doesn't have good, mixed, and bad. The, the Bible only has two categories. Holy and unholy. And the Bible teaches that we like to think of ourselves as more holy than we are. But we're not. Hannah Arndt um, was a political philosopher, an incredibly influential political philosopher in the 20th century. And she's uh, famous for coining this term. She was a Holocaust survivor. And she coined the term, the banality of evil. The ordinariness of evil. And for the New Yorker in 1961, she was responsible for covering the trial of um, Adolf Eichmann. Adolf Eichmann was known as the Nazi butcher. The, what he did, his crimes were horrendous. And, and she talked about the ordinariness of him. And this was really came to life and was really highlighted when um, a man who was a victim, a surviving victim in the Holocaust, a man named um, Yehiel Denur, showed up 
to testify in the courtroom against Adolf Eichmann. And when he showed up in the courtroom, um, uh, upon testifying, he sobbed and weeped and passed out in the courtroom. And Mike Wallace, who was at the time running 60 Minutes, was able to uh, talk to him about that moment. He said, here, you're, you're in the courtroom, um, and you're, you're looking at Adolf Eichmann, the Nazi butcher, who's responsible for so much of what happened in the Holocaust. And, and you started sobbing, and you started, you passed out. Like, was it because you saw how evil this man was? And um, Yehiel said, uh, after, after asking, why did you collapse? Was it fear? Was it hatred? What was it that caused you to struggle so much in the face of such a monster? And this is what Yehiel Denur said in that 68 minutes interview. He said, here's what overwhelmed me. I came in, and I looked at Eichmann, and I realized this is not a demon. This is not a superman. This is someone just like me. And if he's capable of doing this, so am I. Later on, Denur said, Eichmann is in all of us. That's what I realized. That's what made me collapse. He, he looked into Eichmann and he saw himself. Maybe you read a story like Judges 19. And you just see yourself as like, I, could, I would never treat people like that. I would never allow that to happen. I would never, I don't have that in me. I'm not like that. I would invite you to take a deeper look in the mirror and at your own heart. And ask, have you really faced yourself? Do you really know who you are? Do you really know what you're capable of? Do we really know what we're capable of? One of the things that Jesus does that's so hard for us is that he shows up and he comes as the one who both exposes how truly twisted we are. And at the same time, he is the one who sees us in our brokenness, in our rebellion, in our sin. And he says, I love you and I want you and I'm coming after you. Christianity offers a solution to the twistedness of our hearts. But it's not a philosophy. It's not a lifestyle. It's a person. It's God who became man. It's Jesus who chases after his unfaithful bride. It's Jesus who experiences death so she doesn't have to. It's Jesus who is the faithful priest. It's Jesus who is the one and only eternal hope. It is Jesus who comes to rescue the victims and the repentant perpetrators. When we read this story of Judges, we see what happens when a world is fully and completely corrupt and given over to their own desires. And when we read Scripture, what we discover is that God loves us enough to rescue us from ourselves. Do you know that about God? Do you see yourself as the one who is running, the one who has committed and done things that you wouldn't want anyone to know about? If we looked beneath the floorboards of your own life, what kind of secrets would we find? God sees them. 
And God says, I'll pay for them. Because I would rather endure the cross than not be reconciled to you. He is the husband we need. He is the priest that we need. He is the God that we need. And he is available to us. So look into Judges 19. See its wickedness. Look into your own heart. See your own. And then look to God and see his faithfulness. Let's pray. Lord, you have given us this story as a mirror, a hard mirror to look at. If we're honest, we, we, we have to ask, have we created a kind of world that treats women the way that it's supposed to? Lord, we confess we have not. Do we love our wives, our sisters, our daughters the way that we're supposed to? We confess that we do not. If given over to our own self-centered impulses, are we more likely to use people than to love them? Absolutely. Are we more likely to think about ourselves and how to save ourselves? Often, absolutely. God, I, I, I know that in this room there is great sin and we thank you that you have sent us Jesus to deal with it in such a way as that we can be completely and totally forgiven and reconciled to you. Lord, I pray that we would look through this story, not just at it, but through it to you. And we would, we would see that you are what we need, that you offer us the forgiveness we need and the hope we need and the life we need the comfort we need because you are the kind of God who would give yourself up so that we might be united to you. I pray that we would celebrate you and we would be thankful for you because we are an unfaithful bride and you come for us and you hold us and you forgive us and you cleanse us and you lift us up and you call us one of your own. Lord, we need you. Every hour, we need you. Oh God, how we need you. And we thank you that in Christ we have you.